Doctrine is practical, and practical materials must be doctrinal if they're to be of any help to us. Chapter 12 of Paul's letter to the Romans takes the doctrines of the faith that Paul developed in the first 11 chapters of the book and begins to apply them to our lives. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. It's been said that ideas have consequences, and the Apostle Paul will now take the ideas he laid out in the earlier chapters of Romans and show his readers how they're to live them out in a fallen world. Stay with us now as Dr. Boyce lays out this practical guide for living the Christian life so that we can influence a world opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today I'm beginning a study of the 12th chapter of Romans, which means that we have come at last to the practical section of the book. This is a practical age, and people like practical teaching, and so we've come to that section. But I want to begin by saying that I don't like that way of talking about these final chapters of Romans. The reason is this, whenever we talk about these chapters being practical, what we are implying or thinking or stating outright is that the first 11 chapters, which are largely doctrinal, are not practical. That's a way of saying that doctrine isn't practical, and whenever we find ourselves thinking that way, we're making a great mistake and we're contributing to a great misunderstanding. Now, doctrine is practical, and practical material must be doctrinal if it's to be of any help at all. Let me say that again because that's very important. Doctrine is practical, and practical material must be doctrinal if it's to be of any help at all. I suppose a better way to talk about these chapters is to say that they contain applications of the very practical teaching that's presented earlier. Application is the word that John Murray uses when he introduces chapter 12 in his commentary. He says, at this point, the apostle comes to deal with concrete practical application. Or maybe an even better word is consequences. I like that word because there's a conservative college that focuses on the best in sound historical education. Its name is Hillsdale College, and it has a little magazine called Imprimus. There's a little slogan that is the motto of the magazine, and it goes like this, because ideas have consequences. And that's exactly what we found here in Romans that are going to find. We've been dealing with a lot of ideas, wonderful ideas, stirring ideas, ideas that have come to us from God by way of revelation. We would never understand the first 11 chapters or have that material if it weren't that God had revealed it to us. But ideas have consequences, and we had better believe that these ideas, this great doctrine that we have expounded so well, has consequences of a very practical sort. Now, let me make this point still another way. You know, I'm sure, the title, that well-known book by Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? It's a study of the decline of Western civilization and a challenge to Christians to make a difference in times like these in which we live. Now, that title, How Should We Then Live, has within it the word then, and that word then is the most important word in the title. Schaeffer had a great gift for using words, and I suppose... That gift is nowhere more brilliantly illustrated than in the titles. Take that word then out, and what you've got is this question, how should we live? Now, there's nothing remarkable about that when you say, how should we live? That's so common. It's like saying, what shall we do today? 
Or, uh, where should we have dinner tonight? Or, where should we go this weekend? It's a question like that. But as soon as you put the word then into the title, how should we then live? Well, then you've elevated it a great deal. And what you're really saying is, how should we live? And what should we do with our lives in light of the fact that God has redeemed us from sin by the death of Jesus Christ and released us from sin's tyranny by the power of the Holy Spirit? And of course, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Schaefer's main point in that book is significant. He's studying the rise and decline of Western civilization, as I said, and he points out where he thinks Western society is headed, where our culture is headed. He looks at all the trends, and they're far more manifest today than when he wrote the book a decade or so ago. Increasing economic breakdowns, and the fluctuations of the stock market, violence in all areas of life and in all countries. The newspapers are filled with reports of violence constantly. Extreme poverty for many of the third world's peoples. Love of affluence in the West. The underlying moral relativism that is the backbone of our cultural thinking. He looks at all of those things and he concludes that there's a choice before us. And the choice is this. Either totalitarianism, that is an imposed order from above with loss of freedom, or, and I quote him once again, affirming that base which gave freedom without chaos in the first place, namely God's revelation in the Bible and his revelation through Jesus Christ. Now, this is Schaefer's point. You see, he's saying that we have received this revelation from God, and those of us who have received it must therefore act upon it. Why? Because it's the very nature of the revelation. Revelation is a practical thing. And therefore, those who know it and believe it have to begin applying it in their lives. He says, as Christians, we're not only to know the right worldview and the worldview that tells us the truth of what is, but we are consciously to act upon that worldview so as to influence society in all its parts and facets across the whole spectrum of life as much as we can to the extent of our individual and collective ability. Now, we're hearing a great deal today about family values. Now, let me say I believe in family values. Any Christian must. Values of all kinds. But in this current political climate, an appeal to family values without at the same time acknowledging God's existence, God's law, and the biblical revelation as a basis for them will always have a hollow ring. And it will appeal as mere political propaganda and manipulation, which, of course, the present cry for family values basically is. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want to say again, I believe in such values. But unless we acknowledge that God and God's acts and God's revelation are the basis for values and the source of them, then we lay ourselves open to questions like this. You talk about family values. Someone says, but what kind of a family are you talking about? A nuclear family? A single-person family? A homosexual family? Or, for that matter, why should we have families at all? You see how it operates? Unless you have a basis for the values, somebody is always going to say, well, what values are we talking about and why those values rather than any other values? And let me give you a story. In 1987 at Harvard University, there was a meeting of college educators. They wanted to talk about reform in education because education, among other things in our culture, is in decline. One of the people who addressed that gathering was President Frank Rhodes of Cornell University. And he suggested, in the context of his address, that one of the things the universities need to pay attention to is values and the students' moral well-being. When he said that, there was an immediate gasp 
from the audience. You could literally hear it, and one student jumped to his feet and demanded rather indignantly, whose values are to be taught, and who is going to teach us? The audience applauded wildly as a way of saying, you see, that those questions with their allegedly impossible answers were in themselves enough to make foolish the question that Vice President Rhodes had asked. You see, that's entirely a new situation. A generation or so ago, any educator would have had an answer to a question like that. He would have appealed to the several millennium of history of thought, philosophy, and ethics in the Western world. He, he would have appealed to people like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and what they said about ethics, and to uh, historians and to modern thinkers and to the Bible in most cases. But you see, that's not done today. It's returned to just such a kind of education that Alan Bloom was pleading for so eloquently in his book, The Closing of the American Mind. But, but it's all gone. And uh, President Rhodes' capitulation shows exactly where we have come. Now, let me say that it's not just that people today are skeptical or the times have changed. The problem is far deeper than that. The problem is this. Without the absolutes provided by God's revelation of himself and his ways, all views are relative, and there's no real reason for doing one thing rather than another, except perhaps for selfish or personal reasons, which you understand itself undermines the very thing we're looking for, that is morality. In other words, unless you have revelation, you have times exactly like that described in the Old Testament at the end of the book of Judges, where there was no king, the law was forgotten, and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And they were terrible times. If revelation is the basis for social morality and ethics, then it's impossible to have valid, effective, or lasting morals without it. In other words, you've got to have Romans 1 through 11 if you're going to have Romans 12 through 16. Now, John Calvin knew this. He wasn't talking about family values in his day. It wasn't the buzzword of his time, but he was talking about philosophy because anyone who was educated in his time had read the philosophers, and Calvin himself had. He knew them very well. He appreciated them so far as they went. But here is what he said. This is the main difference between the gospel and philosophy. Although the philosophers speak on the subject of morals splendidly and with praiseworthy ability, yet all the embellishment which shines forth in their precepts is nothing more than a beautiful superstructure without a foundation, for by omitting principles they propound a mutilated doctrine like a body without a head. And then he referred to Romans. He said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul lays down the principle from which all the parts of holiness flow. Now, a minute ago, I talked about the word then in the title of Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? I said then is the most important word. It's a critical, pivotal word. We find exactly the same thing in Romans 12, only in Romans 12, the word isn't then, it's therefore. And you find it right at the beginning. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What Paul means there, you see, is this. In view of what I've just been writing, writing about justification, sanctification, all those other things, in view of what I've been writing, you must not live for yourselves, but rather you must live for God. I'm sure you've heard somebody say at one time or another, especially if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time where the Bible's been taught, that whenever you come across the word therefore in the Bible, you should always pay attention to what it's there for. 
Now, that's probably a silly way of making the point, but it's a very valid point. Therefore, is a connecting word. It links something that has gone before with something which is going to follow, and it does it in a casual relationship. So if you're to understand what's coming, you have to look back and see what's just been said. Now, that's what we have to do here. We have to look back and ask ourselves, what does that word, therefore, refer to? Now, it could refer to the verses immediately preceding. That is at the very end of Romans 11. And we had a great doxology there. It exalted God in his wisdom and judgments and paths and knowledge. And it concludes by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Is that the thing to which the word refers? Or let's take a little more. Perhaps it's something more basic to that entire section, Romans 9 through 11. There we deal with election as a great doctrine, reprobation, the passing by of those who are lost, and the wisdom of God, and all such things. Perhaps it's that. Is it because of that, because God has elected us to salvation, that we should present our bodies to him as living sacrifices? Or is it Romans 8? Romans 8 talks about our security in Christ. Nothing is ever going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. Is it because of that that we should serve him? Or perhaps what it says about sanctification in chapter 6, or justification in the opening sections of the book. Well, there have been arguments for all of those, as you can well imagine. And good arguments, too, because every single one of those things has bearing on what follows. Just this summer, as I had been teaching Bible Study Fellowship, I teach their teaching leaders every summer. We had a very good session this year, and the highlight of it for me was one woman who was profoundly changed by the teaching of Romans. She's the one that spoke to me and said she'd had a paradigm shift. I referred to it before. Since I mentioned that, I have received a letter from her. She wanted to express her thanks for what went on, and she described how the doctrine of election in particular had changed her. She said she knew it was there in the Bible, but it always bothered her because it kind of seemed that if you believed in election, then you didn't have to do anything because, well, it was all in the hands of God. Why should you do anything at all? She didn't see that it's because we're elect that we do, but at any rate, she did as a result of the teaching, and she wrote something which was significant in itself, but helpful here because she relates what she had learned to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And here's what she wrote. Not only was my mind opened, my heart was touched. The tears were impossible to restrict several times as I realized what privileged and totally undeserving recipient of God's grace I am. I can hardly believe what a gift I have received from him. It truly brings me to say, yes, 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 to Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's the very least and only rational thing we can do in light of God's unimaginable gift. You see, it was the doctrine of election that touched her and produced the consequences, but we have to say, if we look at it as a whole, that what is true of election is true of everything that we found in the first 11 chapters. Charles Hodge got it right. He said, all the doctrines of justification, grace, election, and final salvation taught in the preceding part of the epistle are made the foundation for the practical duties that are enjoined in this. Well, that's Paul's pattern. You know Paul's writing. If you've studied the other books, you know that's exactly the way the other books are organized. Ephesians is perhaps the clearest example. It has six chapters. The first three chapters are doctrinal. The latter three chapters are the application of the doctrine. It deals with such things as spiritual gifts, morality, personal relationships, and finally spiritual warfare. Find the same thing in Galatians. Galatians is six chapters, but it falls into three parts. The first Two chapters are personal. They have to do with Paul's past history. And then chapters 3 and 4 are the doctrine. And then 5 and 6 
or the application in such areas as Christian liberty, spiritual fruit, love, and the obligation to do good. Colossians, you have the doctrine in chapter 1 as far as the fifth verse of chapter 2, and then beginning at the sixth verse to the end of the book, you have the application, and so on in First and Second Thessalonians. It's also in the Corinthian letters and in Philippians, although it's not quite so obvious in the outline of those books. That's unique to Paul. You don't find that, by the way, in John's writings or Peter's writings. It's not in the letters, but Paul seems to have structured almost everything he said along those lines. Leon Morris says it is fundamental to Paul that the justified man does not live in the same way as the unrepentant sinner. So if you're justified, well, then the things that we find here in these last chapters follow. Now, therefore, is a connecting word. I've just said that. And that means it connects what goes before with what comes after, and we've looked at what goes before. There's all the doctrines that you find in those chapters. Now, what is it linked to? When we begin to answer that, we really come to an outline of this last section, and I'd like to introduce that because it's the pattern that we're going to be following as we study. I find it in seven sections. First of all, in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, Paul lays down first principles. This is a short section, but it's a very important one because it has to do with our relationship to God. You see, in the previous chapter at the very end, Paul has said, for from him, that is from God, and through him, and to him are all things. Now, if that is true, if God is the basis of reality so that everything flows from him and takes its form from him, then our relationship to God must also be the basis of our relationship to other people, and our duty to God must be the basis of our duty to other people also. And so that's what he does here. He sets forth these principles, and he reminds us that because we belong to God, because he's redeemed us from our sins, therefore we must live for him, and we must live for him wholeheartedly. We're going to explore what that means. The second section begins in the third verse of this chapter and continues to the end, verse 21. It deals with the Christian and other people. Now, there are three relationships that you and I can have. One is a relationship to God. Second is a relationship to ourselves. Third is a relationship to other people. That's what he deals with in this 12th chapter. In a way, it sort of covers everything. So what you have then in 13 and 14 and 15 is an outgrowth of what he's laying down here in the first chapter. He's already talked about our relationship to God. That's what the first two verses are about. Talks about our relationship to ourselves in verse 3. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we should be humble. And then in verse 4 to the end, he deals with our relationship to other people, and we're going to study that. Christian doesn't only have a relationship to people, of course. There's a sense in which we also have a relationship to institutions. And the chief institution, apart from the church, is government or the state. What's the relationship of the Christian to the state to be? There have been all kinds of answers given. Are we supposed to think of the state as incorrigibly secular or perhaps even demonic, something with which we can have nothing to do? Should we try to escape from it? That's the answer of monasticism. Move off into the desert somewhere, get away from it. Are we to support it, even if it does something wrong? Are we to submit to it, regardless of what the state does or what it requires us to do? If we're not to submit absolutely, what are the limits? Those are all very valid questions. Paul begins to answer some of them in the 13th chapter, first half. Surprisingly, giving a very strong endorsement of the role of the state. Remember that in his day, it wasn't any enlightened Western democracy. This was the Roman Empire, and it was very corrupt. The answers he gives to the questions are very important because of the kind of things the early church was going to go through in those days of persecution from the Roman emperors. 
In the latter half of the 13th chapter, verses 8 through 14, he deals with the law of love. They came to Jesus on one occasion and they said, what's the great commandment? And Jesus gave an answer. He said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And here's the second. You didn't ask me, but I'll give you the second one too. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul does here. He even quotes that. It's a reference to what Jesus said. You find Paul alluding to the actual words of Jesus many times in these last chapters. And so he expounds that, the law of love, how that should govern our relationship to other people. In the 14th chapter and continuing on into the 15th, as far as verse 13, he deals with Christian liberty. That's the longest of these sections. That on the surface is a bit puzzling. You think of all of the problems in the world and you say, well, now why did he spend so much time on this? After all, why doesn't he talk about slavery, for example? We know that's wrong. He doesn't say anything about that. How about Christian economics? A lot of people wish he'd say something about economics. How about war? Just war theory. Why doesn't he tell us when it's right for Christians to participate in war or when they should resist or if they should be pacifists? Why doesn't he explain those things? He doesn't do any of it at all. I mean, now we may not know why he passes over some of those things here and doesn't deal with them. I wish he was here. I'd like to ask him some of those questions. But what we do know is that he considered this matter very important. Because there's always a tendency of Christians to try to impose their standards on other Christians. Now, understand, he's not going against the law of God, the moral law of God. That's a given. And he's, he's not saying that there's a low standard for Christians, that you can do anything you want. The whole, uh, these chapters are saying there's an enormously high standard, and it begins by submitting yourself to God as a living sacrifice. So all you are or you could ever be belongs to God. That's the standard. We're always Christians who are trying to tell other Christians what to do in areas in which the Bible is not explicit. And he says, you shouldn't do that. He gives the whole book of Galatians to discuss that issue. When he gets to the application of the doctrine, he says there at the very start of chapter 5, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. So he unfolds this great important thing of Christian liberty and tells us how we're to act to people who don't see it quite that way. Well, when he finishes that, he ends the doctrinal section, and he begins with the 14th verse of the 15th chapter to talk about his own plans. He'd introduced that earlier at the very start of the letter. Now he says again that he wants to come to Rome. He explains why he hadn't gotten there already. He'd been hindered. There were other things he had to do, and he talks about what he hopes to receive from the Romans when he does get there. And finally, the last chapter, chapter 16, is a list of names. Often it's overlooked as being nothing but that, but it's far more important because those names give us an insight into the nature of the church at Corinth, from which he was writing, and also the church of Rome, who was there, what constituted that group of people. And perhaps most important, because Paul knows so many of those people and is involved in their lives and interested in them and praying for them, it's an insight into Paul's own attitudes, how he himself had personal concern for others, the same sort of thing he's urging upon us in these letters. Now, as we plunge into this great forest of these remaining chapters, we're going to be looking very closely at the trees. And we've been doing something else Different here in this introductory study, we've been looking at the forest itself, and the bottom line of what we have seen is the truth as a whole. Let me put it this way, because we've been talking about God's work in saving us, what we're saying is this, everything that God has done for us in salvation has bearing on everything we should do, that is, upon all of life. What this means is that we must be different people because of our salvation. Because of Romans 1 through 11, we must have Romans 12 through 16. 
We must be different, and Christians are. I've had occasion before to refer to the Gallup Poll Organization and the interest George Gallup, the founder and president of that organization, has in American Christianity. He's been very disturbed, as many people are, that America pretends to be a very Christian country with high levels of belief in the doctrine of God, the afterlife, and all that sort of thing, four or five Bibles in every home in America and the average, and yet Americans show a declining morality, and it would seem that the morality of the alleged people of God is very little different from the morality of the world around. George Gallup devised a poll in which he separated out those for whom religion really did make a difference. He had a phrase for it, those who were highly spiritually motivated or committed, and he found that they were about 12.5% of the population. Here's the interesting thing. He found that they really were different in a lot of areas. First of all, they were more satisfied with their lot in life. Those people are happier. 68% of those in that top category say they are very happy as compared with only 30% of those who are uncommitted. Their families are stronger. The divorce rate among this group is far lower. They tend to be more tolerant of persons of different races and religions. That's exactly the opposite of what you hear in the media. Every time you see a religious person on television, he's bigoted. George Gallup says exactly the opposite. Those people tend to be more tolerant. And moreover, they are involved in charitable activities. A total of 46% in the top category, one in eight, say that they are presently working among the poor, the infirm, and the elderly, tutoring young people, for example, compared to only 36% among the moderately committed, 28% among those who are moderately uncommitted, and only 22% among those who are highly uncommitted. It's a statistical way of saying that the gospel makes a difference. Well, what are the differences? The differences are those that Paul is spelling out here in these last chapters of Romans and that we're going to study. You see, we, we live in, a, in an age, an age in which people are always going to court, and in which, therefore, we believe that it's laws that make a difference. Laws don't make a difference. Laws change nothing, or at least very, very little. It's people who change things. But you see, in order for people to be changed, it requires the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only place, basically, fundamentally in history, that any changes have come. And if you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have been justified and redeemed, rescued from your sin, and joined to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are part of a radically changed community, what John Stott calls the new humanity. And it's your privilege to begin to make changes in our world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the teaching of this book. And as we begin to study these last chapters, we look to you to bless it to our hearts and minds that we might, as we're changed by your Spirit, be instruments of change for other people and for the society in which we live. But above all, enable us to begin where we must begin in terms of our relationship to you, Grant that these early studies of Romans 12 might stimulate us to do exactly what Paul urges us to do, and that is to give our bodies as living sacrifices to God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically. Biblically.